story of Holy Scripture is a story about man living with God in Eden and really as a result of sin being evicted from God, from his dwelling place in the garden. And indeed, as we trace through all the books of the Bible, the history of redemption, God bringing us back to himself, reconciling us to himself, being brought back into the dwelling place of God, his holy habitation. And as we've considered in the book of 1 Samuel, there has been much um, consideration of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 6 and the first two verses of chapter 7. We've been going through a series of scriptures here, which some might call the, the Ark narratives. Um, how the ark was brought into battle against the Philistines and it was lost. And indeed, the Philistines were afflicted by God there in their cities with, with tumors. Their, their god, Dagon, humbled in his own temple. And indeed, the, the ark is soon going to be on its way back to Israel, as we'll see this evening. But the ark was really the centerpiece of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, when you, when you consider its construction in the, in the law, it's decorated with palm trees and pomegranates. It's decorated with gold, covered in gold. Gold here, gold there. And the palm trees and the pomegranates and the gold hearken back to the Garden of Eden the fruitful garden flourishing with life, the gold there present as well in the land of Eden. Even the lampstand constructed of gold was shaped like a tree. And, and all these things were meant to symbolize Eden because God is making a way to bring his people back into his presence. And yet... With the tabernacle, there is this recognition, of course, that sin has occurred and God is a holy God. And sin must be dealt with for the people to come back into right relationship and, and to be able to dwell again, reconciled to a holy God. And so there is, of course, in the law, provision for sin in the sacrificial system. And there is mediation through the priesthood, and, and so much could be said and elaborated about all that, but, but the point of it all is that God intends for His people to be brought back to dwell with Him again in His holy habitation. And yet, I think the message we see tonight is this, a holy God shouldn't be worshipped according to our own ideas and inventions and innovations. No, we must approach Him as He appoints through His Word, according to His Word, with reverence and awe. 
we see how both the Philistines and the Israelites fall short in that regard. And so we're going to look at these verses from chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 2, in three sections this evening. We'll start with the first nine verses of chapter 6, and we see the Philistines and their religious leadership there, the diviners, the priests, these idolatrous priests, we see the insane instructions of men. Pagan men, idolatrous men, trying to figure out how to deal with a holy God. Insane, crazy, what they come up with. So I'll read each section as we come to it. Let's consider those first nine verses of chapter 6. This is what the word of the Lord says. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So as we considered last week, the ark being in Philistia, it bounces around to different cities. And as it bounces around to different... Well, of course, first, it goes into the temple of Dagon and and Dagon is found lying prostrate before the Lord. And then after that, they put Dagon back up. And, and the next day, he's decapitated and dismembered, prostrate before the Lord. 
And after that, it bounces from city to city. And of course, we see in that the Lord's absolute sovereignty, supremacy, triumph, single-handedly over his foes, over the Philistines and their gods. And so they think of God very um, blasphemously. They think of God in, in small terms, and they think perhaps he's like a local deity. Let's move him to a different place. Let's move him to a different place. And, and everywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes, the people there are afflicted with tumors. And as we read in our text, this goes on over a period of seven months. Philistia is really um, a nation made up of five major cities. It goes from three of the cities, and they start to realize that it's not working. Their attempts to just move the ark around, it's not changing anything. It's only getting worse. There's a deathly panic among the people there, and there are people dying, and they're crying out to heaven. God, in judgment, is revealing himself. He's glorifying his name among the Philistines. And so they're brought to their knees. They're brought to desperation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And though they don't know the name Jesus Christ, they are coming to understand that Yahweh, the God of Israel, He is the Lord of all. And they are desperate to stop this plague. And so... The people they, and the lords of these cities, their leaders, they go to their religious class. It says the priests and the diviners. Of course, these priests are not uh, like the Levite priests. These are pagan, idolatrous priests. And these diviners are involved in occult practices in terms of gaining knowledge and so on. And this is the best that they got in terms of trying to figure out what to do. They go to them and they ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They're grasping at straws to figure out how to make this end. And they realize it needs to return to Israel. It can't stay. But what these priests come up with is absolutely absurd. I've entitled this sermon, The Insanity of Idolatry. You know, sometimes we'll read passages of Scripture and you might think, oh, is, why is that in the Bible? Or, or how do we apply that? Or, you know, are we supposed to copy that? Or something, something of that sort. Well, we need to understand when we're reading narrative, when we're reading the, the, the historical books, when we're reading the stories of Scripture, we don't just automatically come to it and say, we're going to apply it by copying what they do, okay? Because in many cases, you do not want to copy what they do. And certainly this is one of them, okay? So we need to take a little bit more care when applying um, the narrative books of the Bible, especially perplexing passages such as this one. So we don't copy what we do, but I think the lesson that we learn is is this is the sort of ignorance and insanity that exists among those who do not know the Lord. This is it. What do they, what do they suggest? Well, they at least know as much. They've, they've understood something. Somehow they've been 
influenced and impacted by what they saw in the Exodus. Maybe they have some vague comprehension of what the, what the Jews do, vaguely, because they, they know about the guilt offering, or maybe that's something that they've already done in their own religious worship with their own deities. But they, they understand that there should be a guilt offering of some sort. And they understand that when the Egyptians hardened themselves against the Lord, God wipes them out. He sent plague after plague after plague after plague until finally they let the Israelites go. And then when they tried to chase them down, the whole army was destroyed in the Nile. Well, they realized we don't want that to happen to us. So let's make an offering and let's send this away. But the offering that they propose is five golden tumors and five golden mice. And the number five, because, well, there's five cities in Philistia, there's five lords, so let's do five tumors and five mice, okay? And, well, we know that from the previous chapter that they've been afflicted with these tumors, and maybe it seems the mice were also somehow involved plaguing the land. Some commentators have suggested that the, the tumors and the plague that was going on was really like the bubonic plague, which we understand um, was um, transmitted by mice and fleas and so on and killed many, many people later on in human history. Whether or not that's true for sure, I don't know, but they are somehow connecting the mice and the tumors and this plague, and, and they think, well, let's make golden images of them, and that will be our guilt offering to the Lord. Well, just crazy. You know, there's an artist, um, maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. His name is Maurizio Catalan. He's got a couple famous works of art, if you can call them that. One of them is a banana duct taped to a wall. Not exactly a work of art in my, in my view, but uh, I think it sold for $120,000. And then someone ate the banana. <laughs> That's a pretty expensive banana. The other famous work of art that he is known for is his, his work called America, which is a golden toilet that was installed in a New York uh, City museum and was actually used by people that go to the museum until one day it was stolen. Well, he, I think, at least understood the satire of his work. There is something cringy about gold and a toilet. Gold is pure and radiant and precious, and a toilet is... None of those things, right? But somehow it was lost on the Philistines that gold is pure and brilliant and precious and mice and tumors are ugly and detestable and unclean and they don't have much in common. They're vile. We don't like them. And yet... They want to bring these two things together and offer them up as a guilt offering to somehow try to avert the anger of God. That is the insanity of idolatry, brothers and sisters. And yet, 
we should not think it so hard to believe. We understand from Romans chapter 1 how though we should thank God, though we should honor God, our Creator, mankind turns away from Him. Mankind is futile in its thinking and our foolish hearts have been darkened. How much is this a portrayal of that very fact? It's insane. And you might think, well, well, that sort of thing, uh, that's kind of ancient stuff, isn't it? That doesn't really happen today. We don't have that sort of idolatry today of that kind of craziness. Well, um, you know, I grew up on um, shows like uh, The Amazing Race when I was a kid. I'm not sure if that's your sort of cup of tea, but... um, Brent and I rewatched the first season of The Amazing Race. And in the first season of The Amazing Race, they go to a temple in India called the Karni Mata Temple. And guess what is in this temple? Rats. 20,000, I think the number is. Thousands and thousands of rats. It is a temple which considers rats as holy. And offerings are made to rats. And if you step on a rat and kill the rat, you're actually expected to offer a golden or silver mouse or rat as compensation or, or what have you. Crazy. This is all part of a polytheistic Hindu religion which worships animals. That's why they don't eat cows, right? And you hear the phrase, holy cow. I don't like using that phrase. I don't like using the word holy beside cow. I try not to anymore, although I used to. But that's why they don't eat the cows, because they consider the cows to be holy. And apparently they consider the rats to be holy too. At least some of them would. And we might think, well, we're far removed from that, don't you believe? Well, more and more we see in the West uh, a creeping in of some of these values and worldviews and so on that have come from uh, Hinduism and other religions out there. We must take care in a pluralistic age not to be so influenced by those things. I'll mention a couple of things that even just have come from Hinduism that we see more and more of talked about or practiced in our society. There's yoga, there's cremation, there's the concept of karma, there's the concept of reincarnation. There's someone that, uh, I had a conversation with someone at work when there was um, a mass shooting some years back. And before the mass shooting, he had talked to me about Hinduism. And he had told me that when when someone who's a murderer dies, he believes they're reincarnated as a tiger. And so there is this mass shooting. And after I asked him, so is that man who died in in the shooting that he was committing, is he a tiger now? Is that, is that really what you believe? 
And I think he was a bit hard-pressed to actually sustain that. But that's the sort of insanity that an idolatrous world practices and believes. You must take care not to be so influenced by it. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the details of all the other things that I just mentioned in that list, but each of them need to be evaluated against the truth of God's Word. That's my point. You know, there's a show, another show that I watch more now. It's really the only show that I like, and it's the show Alone. And in most ways, it's a pretty clean show, which is part of the reason I like it. But then there's this thing that keeps coming up, and it makes me cringe every time. People, well, you don't know the show. In the show, they're all starving. They're living in the wilderness by themselves. They're completely alone. They film themselves. They don't take any food in. And so the longer they're out there, it's a last man standing sort of thing. So if they are the last man standing, they win $500,000. The longer they're out there, the more they starve, and they're trying to hunt things like squirrels and grouse and large game and, and even mice. And, and what makes me cringe is that when they finally get an animal, like a squirrel, they'll say, thank you, squirrel, for your life. And I think, you've got to be kidding me. That squirrel was running away from you. It, it's a creature of instinct. It's not giving you its life. It did not sign up for this. It's crazy. And the squirrel doesn't know right and wrong. It doesn't want to be your dinner. Why are you thanking it? But you know, brothers and sisters, who did voluntarily give his life up for us, who deserves our thanks, God sent his son Jesus Christ to willingly die as an atoning sacrifice, yes, a guilt offering for our sins, so that the wrath of God due our sins might be appeased, satisfied, and that we might be reconciled to Him. We might be able to come back into His holy place through faith in Him. Idolatrous sinners, even like us, enemies of God, like us, reconciled through His Son. He is the only one deserving of our thanks, deserving of our praise, deserving of our worship. And so we've seen the insane instructions of man. We'll see sort of how they're worked out and applied in the next section. The abnormal activity of animals, verse 10 through 18. The abnormal activity of animals. I'll read the, these verses for us. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. 
A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord, is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So these instructions given by the Philistine diviners and priests was to take two milk cows with calves and yoke them up and put a wagon on them and put the ark on the wagon and see if they would walk to Beth Shemesh or not, some distance away down the highway. And the reason why all those details are important is basically this. They want to make it as hard as humanly imaginable for those cows to actually accomplish bringing that ark to that town. Okay? So there's two cows, and they've never had a yoke before. I watched a recently on this guy who is kind of into homesteading, I guess you might say, in Kentucky, and he, he doesn't have any sort of modern conveniences. And he told a story about when he first got started, he had these two horses, and he was trying to get them to plow. And he didn't know what he was doing, and they didn't know what they were doing either. And he had a yoke hooked up to them. And he got so frustrated with these horses because they kept going this way, and they kept going that way, and they, he couldn't get them to plow straight down the field. Well, that's just sort of highlighted for me in this passage... These two calves, they've never had a yoke on them before, but not only do they not have experience, they don't even have anyone directing them. They're just two cows with a yoke. No one is guiding them. Those horses had him to try to guide them through the field. These cows have no one directing them along the highway. They're just yoked up, let loose. Besides that, it tells us that they're milk cows, and they have calves. And of course, all the mothers in the congregation understand that they don't want to be separated from their babies for very long, and their babies don't want to be separated from them, because when you separate a mother from the child, of course, the baby's going to be crying, and the mother is going to have that maternal instinct to help her children. Well, that instinct is true even in animals, even in cows who have young that need to be nursed, these calves at home. And they've estranged the calves from the mother cows. And the mother cow would feel an instinct 
to go back to the calves to return home to help their young. And when they're let loose like that with a yoke on, that would be their first priority. Go home. Go to the calves that need you. Not go to Beth Shemesh with this ark. Well, imagine that. They put the ark on the wagon with the box of golden mice and golden tumors, and the cows go straight there, all the way down the highway. And these religious leaders watch from a distance. Excuse me, the five lords of the Philistines watch from a distance and ensure that the cart makes it all the way there, and indeed it does. This is just short, you might say, of a miracle. This is next to impossible that this would happen. And they've set it up as so, because their idea is, if this actually happens, then we know for sure that the Lord, the God of Israel, was the one orchestrating those plagues. He was the one responsible. And if it gets back there and the plagues stop, we know who the living God is. We know who is responsible for for our affliction. And it happens just so. And they get those cattle, those cows, they sacrifice them as burnt offerings. The Levites there, they take the ark, they set it up on a great stone. And those Philistine men return to their cities. Now, there's a couple things that I should say by way of application. You know, we read a story like this and we should not in any way think that divination is legitimized by, by such a story. In fact, the, the exact opposite is true. We read plainly in the law that, that the Lord forbids any sort of divination, any sort of uh, fortune-telling, any sort of talking to the dead in terms of gaining revelation or figuring out what to do. All of that is called an abomination before God. It's plainly forbidden. But what is highlighted here is the ignorance, the insanity of those who don't know the Lord. How lost they are, grasping at straws, trying to figure out what to do. And they end up getting the ark back. And you might wonder, well, why did it work? Um... It's not because this was a legitimate form of uh, figuring out what to do, but it's, it's purely the Lord glorifying His name among the nations. And what happened here does not authenticate what they've done, but it does show that the Lord's hand was at work in bringing the ark into Philistia, showing forth His glory and His supremacy to them, humbling their gods, humbling their leaders, humbling their religious leadership, until they even say in their own words to give glory 
to the God of Israel. That's what this is all about. God gains glory among the nations. But we must understand as Scripture plainly condemns those things that they practiced, God's people are forbidden from engaging in them, and so are we, the Israelites of old and the church today. So we must be very careful not to start engaging in those sorts of things as well. I mentioned last week about praying to the saints. You know, there's another, there's another word for praying to the saints used in the Old Testament. It's called necromancy. Talking to the dead is forbidden in Scripture. We don't talk to ancestors or even recently deceased relatives or to saints who've died ages ago. Such is an abomination, and we shouldn't seek to influence our world today by communicating with those who are deceased. And, you know, there's other ways that I think Christians... Uh, I, I read a story about um, these, this charismatic group that was using something they called the destiny cards. Destiny cards which is just a, a dressed-up way of saying tarot cards. That's basically what they were. And they're trying to use them to bring out the secrets of what's going on in someone's life or about the future and, and so on. And um, the Scripture condemns that. And, you know, we, we understand that, that God used the, the star to lead the Magi to Jesus, but that doesn't legitimize you going to the newspaper for your horoscope or, or something of the sort, right? And when my son wakes up with a nightmare in the middle of the night, I don't try to give him an interpretation of his nightmare because God worked through Joseph in a dream in times past. I understand that for me, the Lord has revealed himself here plainly and clearly. And while the Lord may have worked in times past in such a way. And, you know, maybe even, maybe, maybe someone today is impacted in such a way too. I want the clear revelation of God. This is a light to my feet, a lamp to my path. And, and this is what I want to stay close to. Because you see what they did as a result of their divination and their religious leadership and their practices, what they ended up doing was insane. And the reason it was insane is because they were in darkness, darkened minds, ignorant of the truth of God's word. We are not. And God holds us to a higher standard as a result. And God forbids those practices that I mentioned before. And we need to be careful as those things are, again, like uh, Hinduism, popularized in our society more and more. We can see God's hand in history, but we, even with that, we need to be careful because we don't have clear interpretation of historical events in our lives or in the church more broadly, in the West, in any other part of the world. We don't have clear interpretation of those events. Same thing with dreams. And so we need to be very careful about trying to interpret such things and say, well, this is what God 
is saying or doing or, or what have you. No, what the Lord does clearly say is right here, brothers and sisters, in his word. And we need to guard our steps according to his word. So we've seen the insane instructions of men. We've seen the abnormal activity of animals. And in the last section, we see the holy habitation of God. From verse 19 of chapter 6 through to the second verse of chapter 7. Let's read these last verses. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord." And so you see immediately the higher standard that God holds for His people. Those men in Beth Shemesh. They look at the ark. They look at the ark. And they are struck dead. You know, my translation here says 70 men of them and there's a note if you look at your note, like I have, it says, most Hebrew manuscripts say, struck of the people, 70 men, 50,000 men. That's kind of confusing. I prefer the translation of the Old King James, which says 50,070 men. I think that reflects the, what's in the Hebrew manuscripts better. And I think part of the reason why they translate it a couple different ways is because it is a bit hard to make sense of what the exact number is supposed to be there. But it seems to me that a great blow makes more sense to be 50,070 men than 70 men. And indeed, that... Uh, that seems to be more fitting to what was originally there in, in, um, in those Hebrew manuscripts as well. But regardless of what the number is, the point is clear. These men did not reverence the Lord. These men had the Holy Scriptures. They had in their own nation the truth of God's revealed word, the covenant that he made with Israel. They had the first five books of the Bible. And Numbers chapter 4, there is instruction given about the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant, the duties of 
the various clans within the Levite tribe. And in Numbers chapter 4, verse 17 through 20, it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. He prescribes in further detail before those verses how they're to cover the ark with various cloths and so on, and how they're not to directly touch or directly look on the Ark of the Covenant or the other, um, the other instruments and so on involved in the holy place. And God says, if you look at it directly, if you touch it, not on, the, not on the, the poles they carry it with, but if you touch the Ark or if you look at the Ark or these other things, you will die. You'll die. And, and why, would that be, why would that be the case? Because God is a holy God, and they are not. We are guilty, sinful people. And as we are in our sin, we cannot exist with a holy God. And, and Moses is warned, even in Exodus, Moses, the leader of the people, Moses, the humblest man, is warned that if he sees the face of God, he'll die. And indeed, the, the Holy of Holies was meant to be the place where God met with His people. God dwelled among His people. That he, the Lord dwelt among mankind, even. And the Ark of the Covenant was a picture of His throne in heaven, and indeed, the manifestation of His glory there on earth. And so they can't just treat it trivially, lightly, and, and, and go on moving it wherever they want, doing whatever they want. No, God is holy. You know, a few years ago, there is that eclipse, and of course, they, they tell us in the news, don't look directly at the sun or you may have blindness. And so most of us, what do we do? Well, we don't want to be blind, so we're not going to look directly at the sun, Right? Or maybe you'll wear those special glasses or something. It's just, it's just basic, like, take care of yourself. Don't do something that's going to hurt you. Don't look directly at the sun. Okay? God plainly warned his people in his word, don't look directly at the ark lest you die. And yet they go and they do it. And many Men are struck down and perish. But their response is very much appropriate. Finally, they start to get the picture. God is a holy God. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be reverenced. He is to be worshipped. He is to be held in the utmost of esteem. He is to be worshipped in accordance with His Word. And so, they say, who is able to stand before the Lord this 
holy God. And to whom shall he go up? Away from us. So they move the ark to a different place after that tragedy there. And they move it to Kiriath, Jerem from Beth Shemesh. And they bring it into the household of a man by the name of Eliezer. He's probably a priest. Given his name was the name of the former Eliezer, who was the son of Aaron. And this man takes care of it for some decades. But the people there lament after the Lord because they understand something is not right. Something is still off, even though two decades have passed and the ark has moved and no one else is dying anymore. Something is still off. You know, Shiloh was somehow ransacked, it seems. It's not told us in in 1 Samuel, but in Psalm 78 and Jeremiah 7, God says to his people, go back to Shiloh and see what happened there. It's not the way it used to be. God brought judgment upon Eli and his house in Shiloh because they failed to reverence his name. They failed to repent of sin and to go through the appointed means, a sacrificial system to worship him. And and such happened again there at Beth Shemesh, and it moves to this other place. But something is not right, and the people understand it, and they lament. And the truth is, the tabernacle, even the tabernacle, it's always been a tent. It's always been impermanent, almost uh, at its core, as a tent. It moved from place to place through the wilderness. There is this understanding that this is not final. Something greater is to be looked forward to. And brothers and sister, sisters, this is what it's pointing towards. It's pointing toward the dwelling place of God in heaven. And the sacrificial system was never enough. The blood and bulls of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And certainly not the, the images of rats and tumors. A greater sacrifice was needed. A greater mediation was needed. And there indeed was a greater dwelling place that God was preparing for His people. And He sends His Son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for sin, to dwell among us, and to reconcile us to God through His own blood. Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, There is no other guilt offering that will save. There is no other mediation. There is no other way to be made right before a holy God. If you're here today and you stand condemned before God in your sin, you're living for yourself or you're living for idols or you're living not according to God's word but according to your own whims or the ways of the world, you must be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I plead with you, Turn from sin, turn from idolatry, turn to the Lord and understand the only way you can stand before a holy God is by having your sins cleansed and removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Otherwise, you too will die on that day when you are brought into judgment, be cast in the lake of fire. We don't 
We don't want that for anyone here. So brothers and sisters, the main application we come away from this passage, I think, is this. We must have a sense of awe and reverence for our God. A holy God shouldn't be worshipped according to our own ideas, innovations, inventions. We must approach Him according to His Word with reverence and awe. There's no other way to honor His name but to honor His name according to His Word. And may we never lose that sense of His holiness. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do not honor You the way we should. And we pray as Christ taught us to pray, let Your name be kept holy. Help us, Your people, to be a holy people. Help us to be a people who keep our steps according to Your Word. To walk in a way pleasing to You.